Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Though punk ska is often used to describe many of the ska bands in the 90s, not many had strong punk roots and a fervent commitment to the punk scene. But against all authority were an unbridled punk rock band, one that happened to dabble in some ska as well. Though as you'll learn, they also had deep love for ska and highly respected the genre. Born in South Florida in 1992, Against All Authority became one of the most popular punk ska bands in the late 90s underground scene, and they sang intensely political and meaningful songs. They broke up in 2007 and haven't played since. That is until Fest 2022. Against All Authority is one of the ska punk bands that really plays the type of ska punk that I like. I just don't feel like they get the recognition they deserve. They were pretty big when they were a band, but I think... Do you think it's because they broke up and then they just haven't played for 15 years? Do you think that's why? Yeah, I think that's it. I think that there's probably, you know, an older generation of people like me that remember them fondly. But, uh, you know, I just don't think they ever were able to catch with the younger people because they they stopped playing. Did you ever see Against All Authority Live? I did not, no. I saw them at Gilman in 97. Oh, yeah. They're a good band, though. I like them. Yeah. I remember the mosh pit being very violent so they are um, playing their first show in 15 years i'm gonna go i'll be there <laughs> where's the show at it's at fest oh damn fest damn fest hook us up hook up in defense of ska yeah you need to have us there next year first thing i want to ask about is um so you guys recorded a um a cover of ska sucks in 98, I believe it was for the Ska Sucks compilation. Yeah. So Danny was telling me a little bit about this before the, the origin of you guys covering this started with you guys playing or him playing the baseline, I guess at shows. I think so. Yeah. Like, um, we, that's something we would always like noodle with too, like practicing and shit, you know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Did you, when you heard that song, did you think it was funny? Uh, did you immediately start <laughs> incorporating that song give me give me a little sense of your relationship to this song 
Yeah, I think we thought it was just it was kind of we just thought it was really funny when we first heard it. And I, I like the bass line, so I used to always fool around with the bass line and practices and stuff, and we just started jamming on it. And um, you know, that's also to say we were fans of propaganda yeah, as well. Time. You know, like that one album that they had, the first album that they had out was a great album. And you know, like when you're starting off in a band and and all these other bands are coming out you like learn some of their stuff and then it's like oh shit they got a ska song so we would play it and um i think we did a, good, a pretty good um version of it you know yeah. yeah i like the version you recorded i think it's a good version i think i heard your guys version first <laughs> yeah and obvious obviously um i don't think that anybody in the band thinks that ska really sucks <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> no you guys like yeah. ska we all love ska you know obviously <laughs> uh, we're on a ska <laughs> podcast and um we play a lot of ska in our music but um you know maybe i don't know i think that's um so far that's kind of accurate right yeah i mean the way the way i remember it especially being a ska fan and a ska musician in the 90s was that most most of us like thought the song was funny and kind of embraced it. We're just like, yeah, like not like necessarily offended by it, but just more like, Oh yeah, I like this song and I'll play this song. It's kind of like a weird way to like, I don't know, like reclaim it, you know, rather than it being like a source of being like feeling like being made fun of more, just like taking that song and make, making it their own. I mean, you guys played the baseline and you recorded the song. So I'm sure you felt some amount of that. Well, definitely. And, you know, the, the lyrics kind of went along with what was going on at the time with, within punk rock, not necessarily the ska scene. Um, you had a lot of bands that were, you know, selling out. That was like a big thing at the time. Like, you know, these bands that were like getting on MTV and signing these major label deals and stuff. And there was a handful of bands that were still like, you know, like, hey, you know, let's keep this independent. Let's not, you know, take this over to the mainstream and and turn it into something that it's not. Let's keep it weird. Let's keep it for the weirdos, you know. So the kind of the lyrics went along with that. Also, I didn't feel like offended by the song yeah. being a ska fan because, you know, when you're in punk rock, you know, you're used to like, you know, having people make fun of you at school, and whatnot, you know, punk punk back then wasn't like punk now, you know. So um, like I felt no offense with the song. Um that's a, it's an interesting topic that you bring it up because now I'm just trying to wrap my head around, you know, the whole song here. You know, this is going to sound weird being the drummer. I don't think I've ever heard the AAA version of that, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> really? I, I, no, I, I don't think I, I didn't track that with you guys. No, no. And I don't <laughs> I even think I've ever heard it before. Who tracked drums for that? Um, it must've been, it must've been Chris King that did the drums. Maybe. But Maybe I'll take yeah. royalties for it though. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. We I know we con I know we contacted Propagandi, yeah. right? Didn't we ask us, like hey, you know? Green light. Yeah. Oh, they did? You you asked them really? You're like, hey, is it cool if we record this? Yeah, I think we reached out somehow through an email. Uh through Hopeless. Lewis. I think Lewis knew them. So. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like this is their only ska song. Um and like, it's a good song. And I think the fact that Danny, the fact that you could go 
play the bass line at a show and not play the song, just kind of play the bass line and everyone knows what you're doing. I think that speaks yeah. a lot to how recognizable that song is. Yeah, definitely. It was funny. You know, you play that at a ska show and people kind of look over at you like, what? <laughs> also, you know, we had an interesting relationship because when we started playing, we were too, we were too punk to, for the ska bands, okay? And we were too ska for the punk bands. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, mm -hmm. but, you know, um, so, of course, we're like, you know, I think that was like a really good song for us to play because we kind of felt it like, hey, oh, what, we're too punk for you ska kids or, you know, that's yeah, just too so, hard for you? You know, you know? One, of the, one of the reasons, like, I remember also we had played this show. Joe, do you remember this show we played with? Like, it was like a ska festival and all of our South Florida friends, they all, we all traveled up to like, I think it was like above Orlando. Yeah. But MAGA Dog played and. Yes, it was MAGA Dog. Mustard Plug played. Yeah, it was like. The Selector. Tons of Scalabim. Bim Scalabim. Yeah, and, and then us. And it's like, we kind of felt like everybody was wearing suits. They were like, like who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> yeah, everybody was wearing suits and we had like mohawks and stuff. And I think, um, yeah. you know, that kind of prompted a you know me to want to record that song i was just like huh you know that was way that was in 94 yes i think so yeah it was before we ever started you know who would anything. who would remember is um what's his name um from mustard plug um oh dave yeah, yeah. dave will know. i've got the uh i've got the flyer for that show so it's yeah dave if you're listening dave has a flyer please yeah please post the, <laughs> the flyer for the show <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the origins of the band. So before the band starts, um, I know Danny, you, um, so you're, you're from Cutler Ridge. Is that, that's where you're from? Yeah. South Miami. So that, and that's Cutler Ridge is South Miami. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Cutler Ridge is now called Cutler Bay and it's pretty far South. It's just before you start getting into the farmlands and down into the keys and um danny lived in princeton which was it went cutler ridge the next town was ghouls and then after that is princeton, princeton. and then you're getting down into like naranja and homestead after that yeah then you get and then you're down into the keys so we're pretty and we're pretty far south and so you're from the same area joe yes i was a little bit you know, kind of like in the same area, but maybe just like, I'd say like five miles north of that. You know, I lived um, in in the Perrine area. Yeah, back then we used to always say that geographically we were the um, southernmost punk rock band in the continental United States. Yeah, we used to claim that for ourselves. I think that I think you can make that claim. Yeah, we used to we used to we used to fly that flag, but um. <laughs> Yeah, because if you look at the map, you know, we're at the tip of the dick, you know, at the bottom of Florida. So we're and if you look across, we're lower than Brownsville, Texas, I think, or just parallel, because if you look at the map of the United States, so we're pretty we're pretty south. It's hot down here. Yeah. So in the in the in the mid late 80s, uh, early 90s, when you were going to when you guys were going to punk shows, uh, the venue that you went to was the Cameo Theater. Yeah, that was our church, man. That was like uh, uh, back in when Miami Beach was just nothing but abandoned buildings, hotels. Like, you know, we'd all go and 
party in the hotels, drink bottles of Mad Dog, you know, because being 14, 15 years old, that we, that was like our, we had the run of that place. You know, that's before all the glitz and glamour moved down there. It was, like I said, abandoned buildings, old people and homeless people, you know? Yep. And uh, we basically had the run of the town, you know, I'm, I'm about an hour North of those guys. I, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, you know? Um, but I would, I, it seemed like every weekend we'd go down to the Cambio, you know, we'd pile eight guys in like a, my buddy Chevy Nova and just cruise down there and just like, once, twice a week sometimes, you know, for years. Yeah. We had the best shows going on in the eighties. We saw, I mean, black flag, circle jerks, descendants, dead Kennedys. Like every weekend it was just a different show. The descendants just nonstop. Yeah. It's great. So obviously the, the, the punk bands came through, did normal bands like come through or was it sort of off the grid? No, normal bands, meaning like Ozzy and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, keep in mind, Fort Lauderdale, especially like in the 80s, was huge. Like the spring break was like, it was a sea of people down there, you know. Then they had to basically raise the drinking age because kids were getting wasted and falling off balconies. <clears throat> That's when the drinking age was 18, you know. So they had to they had to raise the drinking age to 21. So that de- deterred a lot of uh, college kids from coming down there. But yeah, we had we had tons of shows down there, all calibers, you know. So what, what was the Cameo Theater? Was it like an old movie theater? Yeah, an old theater from the 20s. It was an old movie theater. I actually grew up in on South Beach. Like if you watch the beginning of Scarface where the you know, the whole chainsaw scene, like I grew up right in that neighborhood. <laughs> and the cameo theater was kind of right down the street from there. It's real close to the shore where the beach was. And my my elementary school is a school right across from the cameo theater. And before there were punk shows there, I used to go on field trips. Like I saw I saw Karate Kid and E.T. at the Cameo Theater. So it was like, a, it used to be an old theater there, you know? Yeah. It's an old old Art Deco building. It's really cool. And then they just started to um, play. Actually, you can see, if you watch Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, um, the club scene where they're watching the metal band. Oh, Cannibal Corpse? That's, yeah, that's the Cameo Theater. Oh, wow, okay. That, and there's like, if you watch that film, they actually, you know, they filmed it at the Cameo Theater. And right next door, there was like these old Art Deco apartment buildings where he lives and stuff. And like, that kind of gives you the sense of like what yeah, what South Beach looked like. What would they call South Beach? We just called it Miami Beach. Miami Beach. Well, shout out to Richard Shelter. He was the one who basically brought all the bands, the punk bands down there. Pre-Cameo, he had a place called Flynn's. Um, and that's where like a lot of like, you know, again, Black Flag, Minuteman, all these bands would come down there and play. COC DRI. And then I guess something happened with that club. And then he started talking to the owners of the cameo. He's like, Hey, I, you know, they weren't doing anything. The movies weren't making any money. You know, it was just like maybe three people going to watch the movies there. And, uh, he talked the guy into letting him lease out the, you know, things for punk shows. And, and that's how that kind of, you know, I mean, we pack 1500 people in there for like, you know, for shows. It, It was it was great. And and to bring this back to ska, you know, since this is a ska podcast, I saw <laughs> I saw a fishbone at the cameo. Yeah. And that shit blew nice. me away, man. They were fucking they were so awesome. Yeah, they were amazing. I was a kid, you know, and I was like, holy shit, look at this fucking band. I was just like, I couldn't <laughs> I mean, I don't you know, there's no words, man. Was that kind of the introduction to ska for you? Um, nah, I well I think the first band I heard that I really got into that um that had the ska vibe was definitely Operation Ivy. Yeah. And listening to the Bad Brains. I think the Bad Brains before that 
you know, where they do like their reggae breakdowns and so forth. And um, growing up where I did and, you know, down south, there's a big uh, Caribbean culture. You know, you have a lot of Cubans. My mother's from Cuba. We have um, Jamaicans, Puerto Ricans. So, you know, you got that like upbeat vibe in a lot of the music. So it was like it, we were just surrounded with it. So I kind of grew up listening to a lot of that merengue and stuff like that and salsa. Nice. And um, sometimes I feel like I, I try to incorporate that into like my picking style sometimes. But like hearing it through the lens of um, punk rock via Bad Brains and Operation Ivy was a, was a new experience. Yeah. And, you know, also bands like the Subhumans had had that skank in their music, too, you know. And yeah. of course, and the Clash. Yeah, and the Clash, 100%. And, you know, then, of course, Subhumans went on to become, um, you know, um, Culture Shock. Culture Shock. And... Um, Citizen fish. fish, yeah. Yeah, Citizen Fish. Which are fucking incredible bands as well. Yeah. I think my intro was it was pre that because it was uh when Madness came out. Or well not when they came out, but when MTV started, you know, they would they would play Madness videos. Yeah. And uh that was it wasn't like punk at all, but it had that definitely ska element to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were on the uh the young ones, you know, first time yeah. I saw them. Yeah. Yeah. They played, I want to say they played baggy trousers, if I'm not mistaken on the young ones. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or is it house of fun? I don't know. Don't quote me, (laughs) but I do remember, I can remember them on young ones. Yeah. You know, a big correlation with, with, with punk reggae and ska, you know, they were always kind of attached to each other in the early years. So I know Danny before against all 30, you had a band called Grover snatch. Yes. Uh, punk rock band. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, punk rock, but, um, had some funky vibes to it. Yeah. You guys may, Danny won't say it, but he's a fucking incredible funk bass player. You guys don't know about that shit. <laughs> yeah. He could slap, you like to slap, oh, he could slap the, yeah. he could slap the bass. Like nobody knows, man. I'm telling you right now. Slap that bass. It's incredible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, anybody, I think, you know, if you're a bass player, funk and reggae, I mean, for me, it was just something that kind of came together because it's like it's 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 the groove, you know. Bass players need to feel that groove. It's fun to play. Did you um? Did you other guys? Did you guys have bands before? Like Joe, did you have anything before Against All Authority? Um, I had like you know neighborhood bands that I would play with my friends and shit. You know, like we never played a show or anything. And then I remember, and we still we we all knew each other, you know, through skating. You know, like I had a half pipe in my backyard. And I think the first time I met Danny, like, I didn't know him. I think he, like, broke into my backyard and skated my ramp and shit. And then when I got home, he was, like, standing out in the street with his friends, like, hey, can we skate your ramp? (laughs) But, um, you know, we would see each other around, and we all knew. We had the same circle of friends because, you know, the punks were few and far between, especially down south where we grew up. And um, so my friend Milan which was actually the first drummer for Against All Authority. He was like, hey, man, my, you know, my friend Danny wants to start a band and, you know, give him a call. We talked about it. Yeah. And I think we were like, man, we need to start a band that's like Operation Ivy and the Subhumans, you know. And yeah. shit like I think that. you were actually going to play for Grover Snatch, weren't you? Like, I think maybe so. After Hurricane Andrew, that's what I think we initially talked about you taking over for Greg after 
Hurricane Andrew because he moved away. Yeah. And then I just I, I was just bored with that whole scene. And I was just like, I don't really want to play this music anymore. Let's talk a little bit about Hurricane Andrew, because I know that's a kind of an important part of the story of the band. So 1992, um, Hurricane Andrew comes in and, and, and tell us kind of what happens. It's, it's a really pretty devastating hur- uh, hurricane for your particular area, right? It was it was horrible, man. It looked like a, a like a bomb went off. Yeah. Like my like my girlfriend at the time and I, we were in the small house and we, we said goodbye to each other. We thought we were dead. We we didn't think we were going to make it through the storm. It was like an eight hours of a train running through <laughs> your house. It was that bad. It sounded the way I describe it. It sounds like a, a train full of demons screaming at you for like yeah. eight hours. You know, I thought I thought we were going to die. Um, I I took a shit when I I saw my mother smacking the shit out of her out of her older sister because her older sister was freaked out. My aunt she wanted to run outside, so my mom was doing one of those in the movies where they slap you, get a hold of yourself, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and she was like smacking her in her face, like kind of just like, hey, you're not going out there, you know? There's a fucking hurricane right now. So it was pretty intense. And then afterwards, the aftermath was the worst part because it was a total devastation. Mm-hmm. No power for like, I would say, almost four months. Yeah. Was it the worst hurricane that you did, have you experienced, including up to the present? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think on record, it's the it's the strongest one. Yeah. I mean, you had the one that hit New Orleans, but that was, you know, the levees broke and the water came flooding in. We're talking about just wind nonstop wind hitting you here yeah we didn't have that kind of flooding um because yeah. we do have the the everglades swamp um that's just like right along us but um mm-hmm. yeah it took a long time to rebuild and that's kind of how like we started the band we would call well, you know we had no electricity so we would jam shit out yeah. like acoustically i had an acoustic bass yeah joe had an acoustic guitar and Milan, our first drummer, I used to have this big conga drum that I got at a garage sale, and he would play the conga, and we would just fool around. Yeah, we had we had this plan that we were going to go down to Key West and like play like Fugazi songs and Operation Ivy songs on the pier and make some money, busk for money. But yeah, we never we never did it. <laughs> we smoked too much weed. So the storm hits, and um, there's no power for like six months, and uh, so. When did you guys decide to start this band? Was it after the storm? Yeah, like right at like pretty much right after the storm. Was it because of the like people leaving Grover Snatch, you know, leaving town? Um for me, yeah. Like I mean, the Grover Snatch was an active band. We were playing all over the place and um once our guitarist left, I think I, as I remember it, Joe was going to be the the he was going to replace him. And we had one practice and I just, I, we were playing the songs and I just wasn't into it. I was like, I don't want to play this stuff anymore. And um, then we just, uh, Joe and I had a conversation and we were like, man, let's do some stuff that we really like because the other guys in the band weren't, they weren't really into like Operation Ivy or Fugazi or anything like that. They were, they were listening to other stuff. So we were like, let's do something that we really want to do. And we started writing some songs. I see. And um, so this process begins as an acoustic project due out, out of necessity with there being no, what was it like, by the way, what was it like to live for six months with no electricity? It was rough, man. It was rough. Like I had a, we had a, I had a canal in my backyard 
So, you know, all day we'd kind of work on my dad's house, trying to get the house, put a roof back on it, tarp everything down. We had to pull all the drywall down, all the insulation out, drag it out onto the street. You know, it was, you know, because it was a total, a total loss. Like the the house came, roof came off the house. And then we would just like go and jump in the canal and soap up, <laughs> take take a bath in the canal. It seemed like, you know, we were covered in sweat all the time. You know, it was just really hot, mosquitoes. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, you know, because there were no windows on the house. They all got smashed out. I was awoken to um, the crawling of like palmetto bugs on me and stuff like that, which if you guys don't know, those are those big roaches that are like, huge. With oh, yeah. Um, so it was and it was just, you know, we had to stand in line for food and stuff like that. Um, the military would walk up and down the street at night. Um, my aunt would be like, would tell us like, oh, man, this is what Cuba was like, you know, when we were living there. You know, it was just like kind of like a war zone, you know, Can't, couldn't even really recognize your own neighborhood. It was crazy. I, I used to live down the street from this place called Monkey Jungle. That was like a, you know, a little family attraction place that had all these monkeys and one day the army came to my house and they asked me, they were like, do you have a gun? And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've got a gun. They were like, all right, if you see any monkeys, you have to shoot them on sight. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, no, I'm not. Are you kidding me? I'm not fucking shooting a monkey. And they were like, no, it's not. You know, people think that they're from monkey jungle, but they're not. They're from in, like a, there's a AIDS testing HIV laboratory what? over here. And, and the, mon- the monkeys got out. What? And they're. Yeah. So I had neighbors and the monkeys came up to their fence and the monkeys were throwing shit at their houses, you know, but luckily I never saw them. You know, I never saw any of the monkeys and stuff, but my, but my neighbor's house was attacked by them. So like, why hasn't someone written a zombie movie that starts off in Miami? Yeah. Like during that time, that's just like a great scenario. I don't know if I could shoot monkeys, even if they were like crazy laboratory monkeys. (laughs) I don't know though. When they're attacking your house. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. If they got you cornered, you got to do what you have <laughs> yeah. to do, I guess. Monkey Jungle is still there. Monkey Jungle is there, yeah. Yeah, it's on 216th Street. <laughs> I passed it today. Oh, but but you know what? Just to go back a second, like you were asking about bands that we were in before, yeah. like, and, and the Cameo Theater. Like, I used to go see Spikey's band back in the 80s. Spikey was, like, played for all kinds of bands mm-hmm. back in uh, back in the 80s, punk bands in the 80s. Yeah, there was this... Uh, band nuclear Spike, did you play in any other bands beside nuclear beer before nuclear beer was that your first band no i had a i had a uh, like a neighborhood band with a couple of the guys and then we my first punk band was called blatant view we actually had a, one of the dude from uh the band life sentence came down to florida for a little bit yeah and he was singing for us for a little bit so yeah I, i've done a lot of stuff uh, but nuclear beer was was probably my first well i take that back because the other band before that we played with wasted youth we did a lot of shows um but but nuclear beer, yeah, we got to play the cameo a couple of times, open up for Blast, yeah, and some other bands, and it was it was you know, and then um yeah, I, I didn't meet these guys till was it ninety six I believe yeah that's yeah. when I first met you guys and but we can get there when we get there I guess so when you guys were when you and Joe was it so you and Joe and who else was it Danny uh, for the initial for the initial it was me and Joe and uh, a guy named Milan and we were all just skateboard friends and then um we uh. Joe Joe said, "Oh, Joe knew a, another kid, a skinhead guy named Joey Jukes, and he was really into ska." Yeah, he went we went to high school together. Yeah, and they were he was into ska like we like, you know, we were all into like punk rock. And we liked Operation Ivy and The Clash, Bad Brain stuff like that, you know, so like we had like that aspect going on, but this guy was like full on, you know, 
toasters, specials, Desmond Decker. You know, he was he turned us on to like a lot of of, of that stuff. But he was our trumpet player. So on our very first seven inch, he he was the trumpet player for that. But Milan didn't last as our drummer. He was only he only kind of started out with us. I think we he played one show with us, our first show, which yeah. was Gallery of the Unknown Artists down on South Beach. And then after that, we um he he really didn't want to do it anymore. So that's when we met Chris King. Now were you against did you uh were you against all authority right away or did that come later? Uh yeah, that, yeah, right when, away. when we started playing out, yeah, that was our band our band. Were name. there any other band names that you guys thought of? I mean, it's a great band name. There were some horrible names. Yeah, well, let's hear them. Yeah, we want to hear them. I mean, I know I can think of I can think of two off off like the top of my head. One was one was called so Joe Joe came up with this one. I totally vetoed it right away. But Skanana. <laughs> and I, I can remember Joe trying to sell it to me too. He's like, you know, because it's like ska but yeah. punk, it's it's ska, but na na. It's not. Like like Shanana. And, like, like and I was just like, uh, I don't know. So I, I and then I said, like, what about Skaka? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then we were just like we're, uh, we're both we all just kind of agree we're like we're not going to be in a band that has ska in the name of, in the name of the band a good call like, yeah yeah so there's an alternative uh, universe where um destroy what destroys you comes out and um it's by a band <laughs> called skana <laughs> yeah yeah definitely well i mean if you think about it now that's kind of like a cool name i could see a band starting right yeah. now named that we'll give that to whoever whoever wants to start a band with that you can have that there yeah it is. somebody Start a band called Skana. Skaka. Skaka is also free. (laughs) I I think Danny was telling me before that um, there was no place to play, really, and that you guys started putting on your own shows. Oh, yeah. We started putting, we went to a club um, that was in Coconut Grove, and they used to show like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and stuff like that. And they would play like, um, it was like a new wave dance club at night um the kitchen club so we yeah the kitchen club and we went there and we spoke to a guy i think his name was aldo and we were like hey um you know trying to be like we're hey we're promoters man and we you know can we bring some bands down and like on he gave us three fridays in a row before the club would open and we had we threw these like all ages shows with all our friends bands um we were friends with bands down here called like um, the Crumbs was a band from down here. They were on Lookout Records. Um, Cavity, which is like they're pretty well known in the in the doomcore scene. Um, Los Canadians. What other bands? Los Canadians. Yeah. Darvis um, Brown and the Smoke Asses. Yeah, we had a lot of cool bands. Yeah, Hudson. So, anyways, we threw these these shows, man, and like the line was down the block. Like, just ask. I still talk to people now that talk about that time and they're like man i remember being a kid and it was like my first show and stuff like that you know and it's just um it really kind of helped boost the scene because it was like not that many places to play or have all ages shows yeah at that time there was none like the cameo had closed because they couldn't get insurance someone got hurt there this was because of the hurricane no no this was uh, this was after the hurricane uh, they didn't close it because of the hurricane there there was an accident at the cameo someone broke uh, their neck or something oh i see okay jumping off diving off the stage and then they couldn't get insurance and there was a lawsuit and they decided not to do shows there anymore or something 
I'm not sure of the exact particulars, but and then that that scene kind of like soup it it supercharged the scene and and a lot of bands started forming, yeah. you know, a lot of younger kids and then there was a club um just r- maybe a mile down the street called Cheers which was like a gay a lesbian club and we were friends with the owner. Her name was actually Gay is was her name and she um yeah, she just started having shows there. Yeah. And that's when a lot of bands started coming down. I'm talking about like a, a lot of touring bands would play at, at Cheers. Um, Less Than Jake would play there. We'd play there with them. Um, we'd play with, um, I think Blink-182 played there. A lot of different, a lot of different punk bands from all over would come and end up there. And she originally thought that we were in like competition with her. She was like, "Hey, you know, like we, like we, I think I asked her. I was like, "Hey, can we play a show?" And she was like, "Oh, I didn't think you guys would want to." And I was like, "Why not?" And she's like, "Oh, I thought you know, because you know, we're doing shows and you're doing shows." And I'm like, "Well, shit, I don't, I don't want to do shows. I, we had to do shows, you know. I think they started doing shows because they saw how, how you know." it was going for us. We were getting all these kids and stuff, but we did Joe and I, we, it was a big strain for us. Like I'd work all day and then run over and rent, had to rent a PA and Joe and I would go there yeah. and set up a PA. And then we had to get the bands in and we're yeah. working the sound. We had never worked sound before. And then we had to return all the equipment and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't really want to do it. We just did it out of necessity. Yeah. We we're like, please have shows. This is great. You know, during this era, you know, the, Kitchen Club, Cheers, early earlier era before you guys really started getting out on tour. Were there other bands in your scene that had any Scott elements, or were you like it? There was one band. It was they were called Bingo Mutt. Bingo Mutt was in in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. What kind? What would what did they sound like? Oh man. Well, I'll I'll say that. Well, the singer had a real gruff voice, yeah. almost like Dickie Barrett style, and they were like this just like psycho like ska like really up you know real energetic they released a seven inch yeah if you could ever check it out listen to it because it's a great seven it's good, inch. Man. i'm telling it's you good. I, I mean i i i really liked them you know i thought they were a great fucking band bingo they were great. we 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 played with them as well i remember playing with them at like an apartment complex like at a at a like a pavilion at an apartment complex one time and i remember the singer hmm. took his shirt off to like to change shirts and his whole yeah. back was a whole entire like checkerboard like tattoo <laughs> yeah yeah that guy, he was fucking in it like yeah. doing it you know he was full on that's how you show yeah. commitment yeah man <laughs> yes and there's oh then there was um king seven what is king it seven the, and the soul oh. sonics and the soul sonics. and the drive step bunch but they were all the same people right like that was all the, there were some familiar there were kind of some guys were in that yeah. both bands you know but yeah the the jive step bunch, jive step bunch were was awesome. before yeah. we used to play with them a lot yeah. they were from down here as well they were a great band jive step bunch so your first your first seven inch your first release is the um above the law above the law yes and that's a self-released uh, that was released on Far Out Records. So in it, initially, it was going to be a self-release. Initially, that's what it was going to. We were going to just release it ourselves. Yeah, let's take a step back and talk about that. So, before you guys recorded anything or, or released anything, you were thinking, "Well, we're just going to start our own label," and and you know, right? And uh, I believe you reached out to Ian McKay and, and asked him, hey, "How do you do this? How do you start a label?" 
Yeah, I sent you know sent them a letter, and then they sent me back this little booklet that was called uh, Simple Machines, and it was like it was kind of like a book your own fucking life deal. You know, it was it gave you every you know contact that you would need to start a record label, distributors, record plants, pressing plants for for you know the the CD, the I mean the the seven inch covers, just like all kinds of stuff. So I just you know I said I'm going to start a record label, and then we'll do the seven inch, but at that same time, it's when we were playing those shows at the Kitchen Club, and Tim Farout from Farout Records, he was up in Fort Lauderdale. He had a record store, and he had started a record. He had started a record label, so he had come out to the show, and he was just like, "God, I want to put out your record." So, and that was kind of a thing where we where we were kind of like, "Well, we have all these songs, and we don't really have the money to do it ourselves." And he wants to do it. And he's from Florida with the DIY label. Let's just go ahead and work with him. So yeah, was it is it a similar thing to the booking the shows? Like you, you were wanting to start a label out of necessity, or did you actually want to be on, involved in that level? Yeah, I wanted to do a label. You did want to do a label, but but there was the financial elements. Yeah, but back then, you know, I, there was a whole different kind of take on punk. Punk wasn't just like, oh, I listen to punk. I'm a punk. Like if you if you were a punk rocker, if you wanted to be like in the scene, you had to be an active member of the scene, at least in Miami. You had to be in a band. You had to be putting on shows, passing out flyers, doing, you had to just be an active participant in the scene to really, you know, be a part of the scene. You know, it wasn't just about showing up to shows and buying a t-shirt and going home. It's like you want, you know, we, we like, I guess, you know, Fugazi kind of set that, st- that standard, you know, like minor thread, like the discord scene and, and Gilman street, you know, those are the people that we kind of looked up to and, and, they were doing things. They were actively doing things. So we were just, you know, we were like, man, I want to do something. Let's do something positive and get this thing moving forward. No one else was doing it for us. No one was coming yeah. up to us and asking us if we wanted to play shows anywhere. Sure. And I imagine too, being a band in uh, South Florida, it probably felt like uh, you were like a million miles away from everything, you know, and even, even the, the, even the well-known indie labels. Yeah, that's a big factor. I mean, look at it now. A lot of bands don't tour all the way down to my the Miami area because just, you know, you got to go, what, six to seven hours down into the peninsula and then back up, you know? Yeah, it's a 12-hour round trip. That's how when we started, when we went, we're not there yet, but when we went on our first tour, we're like, okay, we left Florida, so we might as well circle the whole United States, you know, we're out here. <laughs> yeah, you make that first trek, yeah. It's not like being a band in the Midwest that's like, hey, let's shoot out to the West Coast for, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Now let's go to the East Coast, you know, we're like. Yeah, whenever we went on tour, it was like a six-week thing, because we just did the whole circle, you know. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, like, growing up in the Bay Area felt similar. I mean, in, in the Bay Area, there was like four or five yep. places you can play that are like quote unquote different markets. But to leave the Bay area, it's like, okay, six, seven hours to LA or Vegas or Portland. So it kind of feels that way here too, to some degree, like you have to kind of get past the initial long stretch to start doing stuff. But I'm sure like in Florida, m- way more, you know, way more than, than it is here. Well, I I will say that, that, all of all of the little cities around here, like Orlando and St. Pete and, you know, West Palm Beach, like everybody had a really strong scene. So, you know, we, we were we were far away from everybody, but we could drive into different into different cities and, and have good shows too. Vero Beach had a place called the Schoolhouse. We had all kinds of cool stuff. 
So Far Out Records, did he have any other, had he released anything before? Or were you the... He did a couple, he did like a seven inch from this band Hudson mm-hmm. that Spike played for too. That's how we, that's how we met Spike. And um, yeah, was, there are a lot of good bands on a there. band called the One Eyed Kings. I think we might have been. Were, were we the third seven inch on that label? I don't know. Bingo Mutt was on there. Okay, so I think we were the fourth then, the fourth seven inch. The Crumbs was on there. Discount. Yeah. Um, well, who else was on there? A lot of bands. Oh, the Belltones. The Belltones. They're a really good band. If you're into Oi, the Belltones. Tell me a little bit about those early songs that are on that seven inch. Um, I know, Danny, you were telling me that is like a lot of songs from your personal life, you know, just kind of what you were experiencing as a young punk. Right. Um, so, so like Above the Law was written after an encounter I had in um, Peacock Park, which is in Coconut Grove, where some friends and I were out at Peacock Park late at night. And um, we were going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show, in fact. And uh, we were at, we got um, we had someone, you know, went to the gas station, 7-Eleven and had someone buy us some beer and we went out to the farthest corners of this park that's like right on the bay you know no one can see us and we cracked open some beers and we were just kind of sitting on his picnic table you know drinking some beers this was 1985 i think 1980 yeah it had to been 1985 and i could see someone walking towards us through the park and i noticed when they got like when he got behind like a street like the silhouette i could tell that he had a gun on his waist and the stuff and i was like hey man the cops are coming and everybody's like, no, you're just being paranoid, you know? And I'm like, nope, I can see one coming. So um, the cop, cop finally came up to us, and then another cop came, and they started talking to each other, and then they had us, you know, they started kind of roughing us up a little bit. And they were like, you know, I want to see asses and elbows, and they had us up on the table pushing us around. And then one of the cops reached into his pocket and pulled out a bag of weed and threw it on the table, and he said, we got you guys with possession. And we didn't have any weed. We were like, nah, what are you talking about? And they were like, yep, that's your weed. We got you in possession. You guys are all going down. And it was this crazy thing. We were all like, oh, shit, we're shitting bricks. And then all of a sudden, this other cop, who I guess was their superior, came walking up. And when they saw him, the cop that threw the weed down picked up the weed and stuffed it back into his pocket. And the cop was like, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, we caught these guys over here drinking this, you know, drinking beer. And that the superior was like, all right, you guys have 10 seconds to pour all this beer out and get the hell out of the park. And if I see you again here, I'm going to arrest you. So we all poured the beer out and hauled, and, and hauled ass. But um, yeah, that was uh, the inspiration for <laughs> Above the Law song. Wow. Yeah. Was that common, that kind of um, the, the police and their attitude towards punks? Oh, for sure. Especially back, you know, back in the, in the 80s, it was dangerous you know they didn't they didn't know what the hell was going on there wasn't goth and all that stuff around it's if you had a mohawk someone wanted to kick your ass because you had a mohawk that was you had a target destroy what destroys you you go to record that next is your first tour before or after that after destroy destroys you okay so let's talk about destroy what destroys you so i guess you're happy with uh, the far out uh, seven inch release and, and he says let's do a, a full length or how does the next conversation go yeah well he actually um he ended up joining the band we were playing a show one night on south beach and he showed up and he we had a uh, we had added a saxophone player by that time so we had the trumpet and the sax player and then he's brought up the fact that he played trombone and we were like well yeah man like you're cool let's you know let's <laughs> grab the horn come on horn. in you know join the band yeah exactly so that's you know so he became uh, a band member and um we you know we had a ton of songs at this time joe and i were just writing songs yeah. left and right 
and uh, so we ended up right, you know, going into the studio and recording for uh, the full length. Now the studio was a uh, was called uh, Tapeworm over by the airport. Yeah, tell us about that studio. Tapeworm. Oh my gosh, that was like. I, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. The very first seven inch that we that we um recorded is the same tape machine that Bob Marley used to record um Buffalo Soldier. Oh, that's cool. That was the uh yeah the lineage of that recording device. But um, it was just this little tiny warehouse. That um, and I remember we had some we had some issues the first time we went there. Remember, like Joe, we went there and he and he didn't show up twice. <laughs> yeah, this was um Jeremy Dubois, um the sound engineer that he was recording all the bands down here. He was a kid as well, and um, just kind of getting started. And um, yeah, I remember going there. It was a is a warehouse and on a desolate road there in North Miami Beach, and um. That's kind of where we um, we figured out all these songs, man. Yeah. We did "Destroy What Destroys You," and he recorded a lot of the local bands there. And um, I remember he didn't show up like for the like two days in a row. Like we were there, wait, hanging out, waiting. And the second day, I found like a steak knife on the ground. Remember that, Joe? Yeah, I found a steak knife. So he wrote this note, and I just. Like wrote this he note, stuck it to the and door. I was like, "We were here, you weren't." And I stuck, I took the knife and stuck it in the door, <laughs> and, and we left, left him like a message. And that, then he called us that night, and he's like, "I'll be there, so <laughs> be there tomorrow, <laughs> promise." <laughs> so the destroy what destroys you. Um, tell me a little bit about the um, inspiration behind the title and the the song itself. So, the title for that album came out of. Um, it's it's something I kind of I kind of got from the Anarchist Cookbook, and the forward of the Anarchist Cookbook there is a French quote I believe, and um, it says something about um can't remember what the exact quote was, but it was something something along the lines of you know destroying the things that destroy you, like make something about making things kaput, you know, or something. And I just kind of like translated that a little bit and, and, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool, you know, and use that destroy what destroys you. Did it feel like a um, personal slash political message to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, we knew from the get go what what we kind of wanted to accomplish with the band and, um, you know, lyrically. And uh, that just kind of fit right in with where we were going. Well, tell us a little bit about what you were hoping to accomplish lyrically with the band. Well, I know for for me personally, like, you know, people like listening to bands like Jello Biafra, you know, like, like the Dead Kennedys and stuff like those were that was the kind of stuff that kind of really moved me, like made me start stop and think, you know, never I was never really inspired by teachers or, you know, el- my elders or anything, you know, but to it to like learn anything you know just kind of wanted to coast through and ride my skateboard but you know i kind of did a little bit of research on stuff when you know the dead kennedys were singing about things i wanted to know a little bit more about it and that just kind of intrigued me and then when you when you know when operation ivy came out like their lyrics were just so insightful and they, they weren't like overtly political but they had these social commentary that it was just like they just really spoke to me you know and i was just we Joe and I would have these discussions about it, you know, about like what we wanted to do. And we kind of wanted to do something that was along like the lines of like 
the dead Kennedys, the, the reggae stuff that the clash was doing operation Ivy, you know, we kind of wanted to mix all that together, but we just wanted to have an impact on, on like, you know, on the, on, on the scene, on the younger kids coming up, you know, give them what like, you know, the dead Kennedys gave us music with a meaning. Yeah. Cause I, in the eighties and nineties, if you were into underground punk rock or ska, well, a lot of times like the, what the bands talked about were causing you to question the, the larger cultural narrative in a way that maybe you didn't in maybe no other voice around you was. And I don't know if that's still the same for people, but I, I, I can remember feeling that way as a kid in the, in the nineties, getting into this music, how it's like, you're not really hearing some of these thoughts or some of those ways of questioning elsewhere. Right. So it, it, I can see like the value in, in, in looking at the lyrics that your band is, is, is uh, putting out there in your music. Yeah, definitely. I would, I remember listening to the, the subhumans, the EPLP and just like every song was just so like the stuff that they were singing about was just so cool. Just eye opening. Same with bad religion. You know, that was, that was a, he always talked about things or still does rather, you know, it's just like, wake the fuck up people, you know, like this is what's going on. This is what we need to do. Yeah. It's just something a little bit deeper than singing about, you know, alcohol and cocaine, you know, (laughs) (laughs) tell me a little bit about the song. No reason a little, the inspiration behind that. So that was kind of, um, you know, growing up, you know, my, my dad was always listening to Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, I had to listen to that shit all the time. It was right, you know, in my bedroom, like right next to, right next to my, his office is right next to my bedroom. So I always had to listen to that. And, you know, he just, his views on race really sucked. And that was just kind of like a song for him. Like he, I knew he never, like they never, my parents never actually went to go see my band Grover Snatch or, you know, anything like that. They never, they never listened to my music or anything like that. So it was just kind of like a, a, a thing because I knew other kids were going through the same thing. Like I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to just say like, you know, you don't have to follow like all that bullshit. If someone's te- trying to teach you that shit, if someone's just saying those words in front of you and, and treating people badly, you know, like, and, and they're your family member, you know, you don't have to just go along with that. You know, like there's a time when you have to get, you know, you're old enough and you can stand up and, and, and confront them. And that's what I did, you know, and I used, we used to argue about it all the time and, you know, I just ended up writing a song about that. It was just kind of like a, no reason was just, you know, I never saw the reason for the stuff that he would say about people. And mm-hmm. yeah. Did you feel like you ever made any uh, progress with him in these conversations? Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not funny, but it's funny. You know, it's just yeah. that stuff is just so um, ugh, brainwashing, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things, you know, it's like with with politics you know it's like you want to you want to try to explain things to people your side to people but there's nothing that's that that they're going to say that's going to make me change my mind and i guess that's the same thing with them there's nothing i'm going to say that's going to make them change their mind i would argue it's different for people like us that grew up in those households Mm -hmm. and then had their own you know whether it's through punk rock or through whatever ideas therefore these weren't necessarily ideas adopted. They're, they're ideas that we chose. Right. So uh, the, if we feel like we, those people can't change our mind, it's because we've already changed our mind away from them. Yeah. 
The the cover. Tell me a little bit about the cover and the back cover specifically too of Destroy What Destroys You. So um, Omar Angulo was this punk rock kid that was just you know at every show you know just but his his artwork was just this amazing to this day he just you know it's still that same style the black and white pen art and it's um it's just something that he came up to it with when you know he was listening to our music he would come out to the shows and stuff we asked him if he would draw something and he did that first seven inch and then he did destroy what destroys you and he did the first seven inch kind of like a like a comic strip yeah it reads it reads into the into the back cover and um he 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 did the the cover for us and we were just like man that's we were blown away you know he was such a great artist he still is he's still active and in the scene and he still does a lot of stuff so when did you when you guys head out on tour for the first time was that 96 joe or 95 um it, 95 it was 95, 95 was our first tour um we set off in a really in a 1968 a green 1968 school yeah, bus, school bus. <laughs> mm-hmm. we watched we watched another state of mind one too many times <laughs> yeah it was gutted out and there um it was already built inside yeah, they kinda, like a makeshift um, camper, rv-ish like an RV. there's some bunk beds yeah. in there and and um, we we pretty much broke down maybe like I'd say at least 10 times around the United States <laughs> in that thing. We broke down before, like on our on our way out of town, like when we were like, all right, we're going on a tour like that night. Yeah. We had to cancel the show because we broke down. Yeah. <laughs> um, we did. We did have um, a crew with us. Uh, we had the driver was Brad Helton. And he was a certified mechanic. Mm-hmm. And this fucking guy fixed this bus all over the United States with hand tools. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but he changed major parts of the engine. Yeah, we were in Utah. He took the whole engine apart, put the heads into a shopping cart, walked them down to a machine shop, had them resurfaced, brought them back, installed them. Damn. Like, did the same thing. I think the drive shaft snapped. He did the same thing. All with hands. This is all pre-internet, yeah. you know, pre-internet, pre-cell phones. So it's like, oh, we're broken down. And you just start walking along the highway. <laughs> like, okay, let's walk to the next exit and get help. You know, that's what you would do, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that tour took us just about to every major city in the United States. Um, we did it. We booked it ourselves through book your own fucking life. Mm-hmm. Is that yep. correct? We use book your own fucking life. And um, that's, that's when um, we really made, we really met a lot of great bands on that tour and made a lot of incredible connections. We even met uh, on that tour. We met, um, we met Anti Flag on that tour, yeah. which we remain friends with to this day. Um, we 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 already knew Less than Jake, but we played some shows with them on that tour as well. And it was just like a really great time for touring and for punk rock and ska in general. Destroy what destroys you um, is released before you leave. Yes. And do people know who you are outside of Florida? Yes, there were you know. We would we, people knew who we were, you know that, and it was, and I guess it was from Maximum Rock and Roll was really popular back then, and um, people did a lot of ordering, 
they were buying our first seven inch and we we made cassettes for destroy what destroys you so those are kind of easy to mail out people were buying those did you did so maximum rock and roll gave you uh, good reviews i take it yeah yeah we did a few interviews with them um and we had some ads in there we would um yeah we, we would put our tour dates in there and stuff like that uh-huh. yeah it's it's kind of interesting and cool that maximum rock and roll had that kind of reach at that time yeah well i mean it's just incredible yeah that was like it was like the internet of the time like i remember joe and i we would get the maximum rock and roll and we would sit in my bedroom and just go through like every page and i mean that's how we ended up meeting the suicide machines like they had an ad in there like hey punk ska band from detroit send us your demo and we'll send you ours or something like that yeah and we ended up that's how we We actually mailed them our first demo um i I remember doing that with the bouncing souls (laughs) you know they had a little in the classifieds in the back like hey send us your demo we'll send you our you know we traded information that way yeah like a year later suicide machines were playing in miami beach and in between their songs we were yelling out titles of their songs play this play that afterwards they were like how the hell do you know these songs (laughs) (laughs) we're like oh you sent us the demo and they were like oh that's you guys yeah When you went out, there was a demand for your record and they weren't hitting stores. Is this on the first tour? Or is this later on? That is first and second, I believe. So people know people know your, your band. They know the album. Uh, they're wanting it in the record stores, but um, Far Out isn't able to keep up with orders. Is that kind of how you describe it? Yeah, definitely. He ended up closing his record store and um, you know, we would just go to... Every time we went to it, we went on tour, he would just he would load our trailer or a van with like records and we would go to every record store along the way and he would go inside and sell our records there. But we would always hear the same thing when he would go in to sell the records. They were like, oh, we were trying to get this. We can't. What distributor has this? We can't find any distributors that have this. So, you know, Joe and I would look at each other and we're like, well, this is a problem, you know, like what these record stores want our record, but they can't get it, you know, and it was just because, you know. He just wasn't on top of, you know, trying to trying to get it out there. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we met. I think at one point during that tour, we might have stopped that. Was it Rots Records? Yeah. That was in like the Chicago area. They were a distributor and we had talked to them and try to get it distributed through them. Um, And then which leads us to um, I guess we did have some people. A lot of labels were actually. Um, asking about us but we didn't really the message we weren't getting the message you know yeah, um, yeah like, like the, labels like epitaph and um fat records byo byo a lot of bands a lot of labels were interested yeah because in we were on you know our the horn player tim far out he had his own record label and he didn't want us to do anything on anybody else's label so when people would come and ask like hey can you you know you want to do an album you want to do a song a seven inch we never we would never hear that he would just he would just tell them you know no we're not going to do anything on your label we're gonna we're gonna stay on far out Uh and and like it wasn't for like years later i remember i was at lewis the the owner for hopeless i was at his house he was having a barbecue and i think it was it was i think it was mark from from byo um came over and i we were just talking and i said oh man he said you should have done something on byo and i was like oh that would have been a dream come true man i love byo and you know 
we definitely would have done something with BYO. And he's like, oh, well, we asked. We wanted you to do something. Why didn't you should have done it? We were like, well, you never asked. He was like, no, I talked to Tim and I called the record store and he kind of laughed at me and said that, you know, we were not leaving far out. And that was just something we had never heard. We were, I was like, what? Like, I'd never even heard that. So then we started realizing that maybe that happened a few many more times than we'd like to know about. How long did Tim stay in the band? What was he in? Like about a year. Okay. Something like that, Joe? <laughs> Not long. Yeah. Well, we did our second tour, I believe, with him. That's when um, Spike joined in. Right. After our first tour, our, our drummer... Um, was no longer with us so um we need we were getting ready to go on tour and we had nobody yeah it was crazy my my current band at the time radio baghdad uh i was over in europe for five weeks doing a tour i came back and i recorded the hudson record and then jason morgan from hudson was like hey man these guys need a drummer you know are you interested and i'm like fuck that all i wanted to do was tour you know so I'm like, sure. You know, I think I've, I've practiced with you guys, what, three, four times, if that. And then we just right. hit the road yeah. for another six weeks. And I think that was Tim Farrow's last yeah, tour. That was his last tour. Um, I think after that, he was, yeah, he kind of split up or whatever happened after that. And on that tour is when we played in Corona at the Showcase Theater, I believe it was. And um, Lewis Posen from Hopeless Records came out with... Um, I forget his name. Darren. Really? Darren, yeah. They came out to the show and, and they were showing a lot of interest in our band and they really wanted us on there. And we had met the um, Falling Sickness guys. Yeah. You guys have heard of Falling Sickness, great band from California. And um, they were telling us, like, hey, man, you know, join the family. You know, this, why don't you do a record with us? And we're really into the idea. Who else played that show at the at the showcase? Man, that's a good question. I final final conflict was it? Yeah, yeah, final I think conflict. it was. Yeah, I just remember there was like some punk girl. Like as soon as we pulled out the horns on stage, there was some like punk girl with an ass flap that started screaming at us. <laughs> what was she yeah. on? <laughs> just like get the fuck off the stage! You guys aren't punk. This is a punk show. You know? Which goes back to what I was saying, you know, we were too we were too punk for the ska people, too ska for the punks, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about this period between destroy was destroys you and um, all fall down. So, punk rock and ska are both kind of having a rise both in the underground and the mainstream. So, how is that impacting? What is what is it like for you guys out there? Yeah, uh, you know, it just goes back to the same thing Joe was saying. Like we were, we felt like. We ne- we didn't get like a uh, a lot of respect in the ska community because they thought that we were just too punk. We weren't singing goofy songs. We weren't poppy. Yeah, you know, and we weren't singing about you know, you know, just goofy stuff. And then like the stuff that happened with the when with Final Conflict, the girl with the ass flap. It's like she saw horns and all of ma- automatically she didn't she had never heard of our band or anything. She didn't know what we she were judged about, us. and she just started screaming at us and yelling at us and you know. Yeah, just because we had horns on stage. So it's just kind of like, you know, one of those things. Which I will say that that kind of worked to our advantage in a way because we got to tour with some incredible bands, meaning on, 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 a, on a big spectrum. You know, we, we toured, uh, we did a major U.S. tour with GBH and the band Conflict, which are, they're punk as fuck, yeah. right? Seven seconds. And 
Yeah, seven seconds. And then we equally Yeah, the Vandals. Yeah. Vandals. A lot of punk bands. And then we equally did a uh we did tours with Lesson Jake, yeah. Real Big Fish, you know, and we could just kind of fit our way with 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 all kinds of bands, you know. Did you feel like you know w- whether you were playing with a punk band or a ska band that it was like maybe the whole crowd wasn't into you but there was a certain amount that were very into you that you were were like winning over like that certain percentage of crowd yeah we would totally get people come up to us afterwards and say you know like you guys turned us on to punk you know like we we were listening to ska and stuff but now we're listening to you know dead kennedys and and vice versa you know punks were listening to ska so so hopeless reaches out to you. Are you interested right away, or do you apprehensive at all? A little, a little apprehensive, you know. What causes the apprehension? Uh, it's just working with people that you don't really know. Like we knew them from going to shows. Like every time we'd play California, they would come out and they would kind of travel and go along to a, like a few different shows. And um, at that time, you know, Tim Tim Farout was still in the band, so he wanted to put out our next record, but he couldn't keep up with our, with our last record, you know? So we we were like, we, we can't do another record where people just can't get it, you know? So, yeah. I mean, hopeless is a pretty like significant label at that point. Yeah. They, we never, we never had problems with distribution with hopeless. They, they could get our records out. Yeah. And of course our, you know, one of my favorite bands was on that label, um, mustard plug. Yeah which they're great guys, you know, and so it just felt like a good fit for us at the time. Yeah. So did you record that record at the, the same spot, the tapeworm, or did you record somewhere else? No, I'll fall down is the album that we did next after, um, destroy. We did all fall down. We went to, um, West, West beach recorders. Yeah. yeah. Donald Cameron. We were talking about that. Was that, a um, was that, did that feel like a big step up for you guys? Oh, definitely. That was crazy. That was like, we actually loaded everything into our van and drove from Miami all the way out to Hollywood to record the album. Wow. You know, so it was, yeah, it was kind of cool. Where did you guys stay while you were recording? We stayed at this, uh, there was like a hotel around the corner so we could walk right to the studio. And um, yeah, it was, you know, it was quite, it was quite a thing. I remember like sitting in a, sitting in the pool at night. You know, and I'm like, what? What's going on? Like, I'm in Hollywood <laughs> recording an album. You yeah. know, I'm in a pool. Yeah. I'm in a pool. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, we just came out of a hurricane, and yeah. we're like, oh man, we're like living large right now. You know? <laughs> How many days was that recording session? Maybe ten days. Okay. Yeah, it took a while. There was a few days that we took a day off because mm-hmm. of issues, and you know, we had. Let me. I, I'll. I'll say this: that it was just an honor to be able to record with Donald Cameron, yeah. you know, and all the bands that came out of West Beach Recorders, and for us to be able to experience that was just was incredible for us, you know, being young kids. What were some of those bands? Oh, a lot of bands. I mean, he recorded all the Bad Religion stuff, the early Bad Religion stuff. Yeah. He did, um, you know, Rancid. I think Sublime. I mean, a lot of different bands, yeah. especially during that era. Yeah, that whole early California punk sound, man, that's that's him. Attributed to him, yeah. So what were the issues that made it so you guys had to take days off from recording? Or can you not um, talk about 
Yeah, I don't think. Um, I mean, no. Yeah, we're not gonna say bad things about anybody. Yeah. But you know, like like everything, you got you, you have your trials and tribulations. Sure. You know, and we got through them. You know, some people were struggling with substance abuse, mm. and so we had to take a few days off. And you know, we got the job done, and we were really happy with the end product. You know, we never got to record an album of that caliber. And I think to this day, it really a lot for a lot of people. That's our first album. Yeah. Yeah. They've never heard "Destroy What Destroys You." You can't really, if you don't own a copy or listen to it on on YouTube, they don't really know it exists. Yeah. So. I think it was a good um, first album for Hopeless Records. Yeah, tell me a little bit about, so there's the title song, All Fall Down. Can you tell me a little about the inspiration behind that? You know, it was just about watching what was going on with the world at the time with the, all the pollution and just the 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 fight against that, you know? Like if, if, if you brought up, you know, kind of, I mean, it still happens today if, you know. Still happening. Yeah, if you, if you, bring up like hey maybe we should take care of the atmosphere if we should maybe we should think about you know treating each other with respect and you know it's you know it's still valid to those points are still valid today man just people fight that fight back on that you know it's weird the song feels like obviously angry but it feels like there's some amount of hope to it do 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 you feel like that's accurate definitely i mean we're definitely angry young kids at the time that were you know speaking our mind and stuff but you know the scene was a positive scene you know it was about always creating something and building something new and moving forward so you know i hope that you know a lot you know people got that for a while or during this period you used um a logo the triple a that was basically um you know the audio the american automobile association logo right and they reached out to you and told you to stop. <laughs> well, it was similar to that their logo. Yeah, we had a a line that went through the entire logo. Yeah, which yeah. crossed all the A's. So we and, and at that time their 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 middle A was offset yeah. from the other A's. It wasn't like straight across how they have it now. So I would say that they copied us. <laughs> okay, that's right. But you know that's for another court appearance. I believe <laughs> that's a different podcast. So what happened? Did you get a like a a letter in the mail? What happened? Yeah, we got a letter like sent to the I think they sent it to Hopeless, like a cease and desist and, you know, and all of that. They wanted us to destroy copies that had it still on there. All of, you know. Yeah, it was a pain in the butt. We we wanted to fight them in court, but um you know, we didn't have the we didn't have the money and Hopeless wasn't willing to to help us out with it. So yeah, you may so if you own a copy of All Fall Down with the with the logo with the AAA logo on it, that's the first pressing of it. Yeah. And um after that, they started pressing it without the three A's. Mm-hmm. It just said against all authority. We still tagged it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's so strange. I know that happened a lot in that time period, but I just wonder Yeah. A, I wonder how they found out about it, and B, why they even cared. Well, we got a, we have a pretty good idea how they found out about oh, it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. A, a disgruntled, a disgruntled band member. I think um, we heard later on from from friends in the scene that you know maybe maybe someone a disgruntled band member had something to do with that. Yeah, we can't prove it, so we're not going to say it. But that's how we feel about it. But they they brought it to their attention. We so yeah, people brought it to a, people brought it to our attention that 
somebody brought it to their attention. So. <laughs> yeah, because why would a yeah allegedly 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 yeah why would a a corporation like that? What the fuck? Uh, they're not going to punk rock shows. Yeah, unless one of their kids went to a show and came home with a T-shirt. Yeah. I mean, who knows? You know, could that could happen? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of theories. If you have any theories, <laughs> please share it with us. Please write to in defense of ska and send your comments. Well, I remember we asked him like, "Why do you?" Yeah, we were like, "Why do you even care, though? Why, why, why do you even care about this?" And I think their lawyer said that um, we were trying to sell albums using the name, you know, using that logo made people. <laughs> it was confusing people. How to change a tire with a Molotov cocktail? And, yeah, and I, I was like, "What do you think people think that you guys came out with this album?" <laughs> we're trying to sell albums, you know, like oh, we're. we're People are buying it going, oh, wait, I thought this was the American Automobile Association album. What the hell is this? This is horrible. Punk ska? Shit. Yeah. Corrupting their kids. If anything, you're probably reminding people to get, um, you know, AAA service for when they hit the road. Yeah, yeah man. Exactly. We were, we were advertising, free advertising. <laughs> they should have been paying us. Well, we did have, well, we, we toured out to California one time. We had a friend named Tang who was working at Epitaph Records. And we had broken down, again, one of the many times we broke down. And we were staying at his house. And I guess his uncle had a printing machine yeah. that made ginormous stickers. Vinyl stickers. Yeah. And he made a giant AAA symbol that we had stuck to the van. It was incredible. Like, it looked really cool. There was two on the on, there was two on the driver's and passenger side door, and then one huge one on the back of the door. Yeah, and and it was like we thought we were like, damn, that's the shit, right? We thought we were cool as fuck. And I remember pulling into a a truck stop once, and like these truckers like, oh y'all boys working tonight? They thought we were like <laughs> we they thought we they thought we were like legit um American Automobile Association. Oh, I thought they were asking oh, yeah. you if you were working because they wanted to. They're trying to get it. Have some fun. Oh, they thought I was a lot yeah, lizard. They thought, they thought that's going on. That's what I thought they were on. <laughs> I don't know, man. Who knows? You got to please be careful at the truck stops when you go there. Yeah. I just remember you came back with five bucks. I was like, where'd you get that? Nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so this was probably you guys' peak in terms of popularity, would you say, as a band? Were you guys headlining tours at this point? Yeah, at that point. Uh, off all down and uh 24 hour like with the uh, next album too yeah so, yes yeah, so 24 hour road assistance is the next album and obviously that's a jab at uh the triple uh, a right i don't know <laughs> yeah maybe right <laughs> could be thinking about it you guys never probably thought about that before yeah, allegedly 24 hour roadside resistance yeah that sounds like it um that one was the follow-up and um we we did have what was cool and and now i'm gonna like go back to all fall down before we move on to this one we had we got to work with some incredible artists for all fall down and we had omar angulo do the front cover again which he did the prior records but then for the back cover we had jesse michaels from operation ivy did the back oh, cover nice. on on that and as well and what other part danny on the inside of the record right what do you call the the circle the label like yeah the label on the record you know the round part with the hole in it um 
Jesse Michaels drew something really cool yeah. on that as well. We ended up putting so that on the CD. When you pick up the CD, it's underneath the CD. Yeah, so check oh, that nice. artwork out when you get when you when you buy your All Fall Down record. <laughs> and then after that, we worked with um, Omar and Gulo again. He did the front cover, which depicts the AAA symbol with the businessmen standing in front of it, right? And on the back, we had John Yates did the cover, um, who worked with bands like the Dead Kennedys and so forth, and has done some great artwork like um, Officer. You ever seen the Officer Friendly um, with the cop, you know, with the with the baton, Holding looking the all scary and stuff? Yeah. So he he did the the back cover for us, and. Um, he helped us brainstorm that title and it was just pretty genius, you know? So ska is starting to lose um, popularity to some degree in the late nineties, early two thousands. You guys are in a weird position with ska already. So how, how does that impact you? Does that impact you in a negative way or does it not really impact you at all? Well, um, if you listen to that record, there's, a lot less horns on that record mm -hmm. and there's more straight up punk rock songs and i think that it wasn't so much that there was no offense to ska i know this is in defense to ska <laughs> but no offense to ska um i think it was more so that we were frustrated with our horn players yeah because it was difficult to find um, members to play in the band that were that felt the way me and Danny felt about the band. Um, we we had a lot of um, horn players just like, hey, oh, the tour's next week. I can't make it, but I found this guy that's just gonna play horn with you. And we were kind of stuck in a rut, and we're like, fuck it, we'll take this guy, you know. No, by guy he means kid, because the, these guys were like sixteen years old. Some of them, you know, we would have to get permission from their parents. We'd have to meet their parents, and it was like so. We were we were liable for these guys, you know. It was a little bit difficult for us, so um, we're like, well, we need to have some songs that just are like straight up punk. Because what happens when the horn players can't show up? You know, we need some material to play, and we actually did do a tour once. As a three piece, um, we we did a, a a short run with the band H two O, and it was if you ever caught us on that tour, you saw us as a three piece because we did not have any horn players on that tour. Is that right, Danny? We didn't have any horn players. I I don't remember that, but I, it could be. Yeah, I, yeah, I we had so. no horn. We must have played like up and down the East Coast with just as a three piece. Okay, I don't I don't even remember no. that. Yeah, that was a, uh, you know, one of the one of our rough patches in the past, but we kept it going. Yeah, well, I remember when we were writing Twenty Four Hour, you know, some of those songs that are on that album were supposed to have horns, but those guys just weren't showing up to practice and they weren't writing songs. And when we when we got into the studio, I remember they were trying to write horn lines when we were in the studio, and I that was like I was like no way, you know, like we wrote these songs, you know six months ago we wrote lyrics wrote all this stuff ready to go and now you're going to try to write a horn line like and then record it right away screw you, you know forget it 
you know that's not going to happen yeah so that album a lot of people they'll talk about how it just kind of was a little bit different for us you know if going from destroy what destroys you to me that record has a like a just a darker vibe to it in general you know maybe maybe because the horns aren't on there but it's it's just the mu- the music just sounds darker and i don't know yeah definitely more minor scale songs and stuff but that that was the first um that's spiky's first album too that he played on yeah that's right yeah. well no no before that so, so no. blame it on me. Before before <laughs> that, didn't we do the didn't we do the ten inch with um with the criminals? The criminals prior to that? Or was that after? Wasn't that the same recording? We just split up the songs? I, I don't remember. It's all a blur. Yeah. Yeah. Where were you at, Danny? Like lyrically, um you know, what place were you in? You know, you guys talk about it being a little darker sounding. Were you in a darker place lyrically too, or was it more kind of the similar place you'd been in? Maybe a little bit darker because, you know, when when I was younger, I wasn't really paying too much attention to what was going on around me. But then as I got older and I was involved in the scene and, and writing lyrics and stuff, I started paying attention more to politics and what was going on in the world. And it was just, you know, it was a dark place, you know, with the Bush and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, with we, you know, we were out. Yeah, we were at war and, you know, was there stuff that more got the more specific about? stuff that was happening i would have to look at the uh <laughs> the song titles because well we also had uh dubois did that record too right yes that's right so he, he did the first what well, the destroy what destroys you and then he came back with uh 24 hour jeremy dubois recorded started recording 24 hour roadside resistance yeah um and oh no yeah he recorded oh, that, was, that was the re- next one he recorded the whole the whole album yeah so we went mm-hmm. back that was a step away from west beach recorders we wanted to do it here in south florida you know because it was it was a lot to trek across the u.s and do it over there so we kind of did it here on our own terms in a place that we were more comfortable yeah and at that time um jeremy dubois was not no longer in tapeworm studios there was a more you know a, a, the dungeon the dungeon yeah. was the new studio that was like a step up and that's where we did um, 24-hour roadside resistance. Yeah, they had all new new equipment and stuff. But yeah, back to the um, the songs. The, um, like the song, the next song, that was definitely something that we saw every day, like playing shows. You know, on when you're on the stage, we had like, there was a big skinhead problem at the time. And you would just watch it. You, you could count on it. It was going to happen at every show. There was going to be some fights. Mm-hmm. and it seemed like it was always the same you know you're a different town but it's the same person you know they're kind of you know sit back look around and that it's almost like they just pick out the weakest person and jump on that person just so that they can have some bragging rights after the show they can sit back and talk with their friends about how they kicked somebody's ass or something you know and um so you know we always tried to confront that at our shows we wouldn't allow if you were going to fight, we were going to make a spectacle out of you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, everybody was going to make you leave. And but, you know, sometimes that would happen. We'd make the people leave. And then the person that was this, you know, maybe not as strong as that person. The, oh, the, the dungeon. You know, the gun that was a little bit weaker than that guy. He would step up. And then all of a sudden he was the tough guy in the crowd. So that was kind of like the song about that. And then um, 
also the that source of strontium 90 song was about you know we grew up joe and i grew up in the shadow of uh turkey point nuclear power plant and um just kind of a song about some of the stuff that was going on with that nuclear power at the time so adam adam used to be in the band link 80 and uh he we were talking before the episode that you guys and link 80 we were always booked on shows together but then you guys wouldn't make it to the show and I started to wonder if you guys didn't like us. <laughs> well, here's the thing. First of all, I'm going to make you feel bad because we're mis- misfits of ska friends. We were both on the compilation together. Yeah. So we're friends. And we did play with you, I believe, at the Nile Theater one time. Yep. What year was that? Because I joined in 98. So it might have been. Oh, the- maybe it was after that. And we played so we played somewhere else too with 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 Link eighty two, because I remember yeah. I remember um the band they, everybody was on um, Danielle Steele's big like camper bus. Yeah, so that was when before I was in the band they had a they had uh they had like an RV right yeah and they had like a a handler for Nick like driving the van around yeah right no right. nobody in the band knew but that was actually like a like a psychiatrist. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's well, that's good. Well, I I will tell you this, Adam. You guys were huge in the UK. Oh my God! Like, <laughs> we're no matter where we were, people were talking about about Link. We I didn't, and at first, I'll tell you what, I didn't even know that they were saying Link eighty. I thought there was a band over there called Link AE. <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, you should be Link AE, Link AE." And we're and I'm like, "Oh, shink, Link, Link, Link AE, who's that?" And you know, and they were like, "Oh, you don't know Link AE?" And I was like, "No, man." And you guys made a big impact there because you had just toured there, I believe. I don't know if you were in the band at the time or not. Yeah, I did all the touring over there. We toured with Cap Cap Down over in England, and they. Sure, That's all they yeah. would talk about. They love yeah, Link yeah. IE and slow cooking. <laughs> yeah, you know, with the two. That's yeah. all we heard. Yeah, man, I mean, really good bands too. Really good guys, and um, yeah, it's a, it's weird that we never really toured with you guys or did a, a like a long stretch. You know. Yeah, I'd always I would always look at our itinerary and I'd be like, oh, cool, cool, we're gonna see Against All Authority, and then something would happen and you guys would have to drop off the show. And then later I heard about your, your bus breaking down. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, maybe they're, and then, so the years later I was like, maybe their bus broke down. But I remember telling Brent once I was like, he was talking to one of you guys and I was like, ask, ask if they like Link. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, we're just, I guess the, the forces were against us from playing, you know? Yeah. yeah there's some kind of, same thing. I mean, we never played with mustard plug either when I was in the. We band. always had vehicle problems, and and I think it's some kind of yeah. bad karma with the American Automobile Association. <laughs> it could be that someone did a. <laughs> well, did you guys ever have AAA like coverage? No. I mean, maybe through my cell phone or something. Okay. Well, so was it was it a thing like out of principle you weren't going to have AAA? <laughs> yes. Like <laughs> everybody, burn your AAA card. That's right. <laughs> wasn't there okay am i tripping or was there another ska punk band just called triple a no i saw that too somewhere like i remember seeing that on a flyer and it was i think it was in like san francisco or somewhere like yeah. i remember it just said triple a and we we're and we we're like what the hell is that man? well that i don't know how but you know I, well i do know why but 
people just they refer to us as triple a all the yeah. time you know and um mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm I'm pretty sure I saw that before on flyers and was like, oh, cool, against all authority. And then it wasn't against right, all authority. Right. And I was like, what? They were imposters. Yeah. <laughs> where are they now? Not on this podcast. <laughs> I want to ask about so Danny told me about this show in the 2000s where um you guys played at a, in like Houston at like a Mexican restaurant. And um, there was a hardcore band called Evergreen Terrace that played across the street. Do you know the story I'm talking about, Danny? Yes, I do. Why don't you pick up the story? And then if anyone else has anything to add, please do. Okay. So, yeah, it was this old. It looked like it used to be like a Mexican restaurant, but they had turned it into a uh, into a venue. It's a really cool little spot. But right across the street, I mean, directly across the street, there was another club. And we were playing... We, we were gonna, we were playing our show, but Evergreen Terrace was a band I had never heard of. They were a hardcore band. They were playing right across the street, and everybody was there to see them. They had a line that went all the way down the street, and um, there was like I don't know, maybe thirty people at our show. So you know, and we were, and I remember we were standing outside, and one of the girls that was in the line, she yelled across the street. She was like, "Hey, who's playing over there?" And one of the kids yelled back, "Oh, Against All Authority," and she yelled, she yelled back, she's like, "Oh." What are you guys is in junior high? <laughs> like, like said something like that. It was really, I don't really remember funny. that. <laughs> so this was like what 2002, 2003, maybe? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this was like the, at that point when people were kind of hating on ska. Yeah. Okay, so then you went over to check. You went over across the street to check out the band, and, and you saw them in the parking lot. Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, but like I, I didn't even go across the street. I was just kind of like hanging out outside of the show, and um. But, but I just remember before they went on, they uh they all went outside and they grabbed some weights and they were outside like <laughs> pumping iron, you know, in the <laughs> in the parking lot, you know. And I was like, oh man, what's going on? Like, damn, is that what we have to do to get people at our show? Yeah, exactly. We went and bought some weights. <laughs> I've got a thigh master I can bring. Yeah. <laughs> Where was that in Texas, right? Yeah, I believe that was oh, Texas. So you guys don't remember the weightlifting hardcore band that played across the street and, and stole your audience? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Misfits used to do that. Misfits would bring a weight bench on tour. Henry Rollins does it. A lot yeah. of guys do it. Yeah, we saw yeah. we played with we played with Henry Rollins in in Florida, and he had a a trailer that had a solo flex in there, and he was in the <laughs> this thing. Yeah, no lie. Yeah. Was it Rollins band or was it just Rollins? It was Rollins band, but they were playing black as Black Flag and Keith okay. Morris actually came out and sang the first half of the set and then Henry Rollins finished it up. Yeah. That was a that was a cool show. It was a benefit for the West Memphis three. Oh yeah, I remember when that was happening. Yeah. Really cool. So in the in like two thousand five you guys opened for Real Big Fish on tour? Mm-hmm. And less than Jake. That was a was it two thousand? I think that was in oh six or oh seven. Okay, probably. How did the uh, real big fish crowd react to you guys? It was weird, you know. Yeah. Like, sure. I think, uh, like, I know the first part of the tour, like, not a lot of people even got to got to see us. Um, they the the managers of the the tour managers. Uh, on their side got together and and kind of had us they 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 moved our our set time back so do, if doors were at eight o'clock 
like our stage time was eight o'clock. Oh, geez. So a lot of times by the time like our fans got into the club, we were done playing. So our fans were like pissed off about it. Yeah. And I, I remember that, um, you know, then we realized that, you know, that was it was the people on the tour were great. You know, we made a lot of friends on that tour. Um, Less than Jake, they, they've always had our back. You know, they always vouched for us and they got us on that tour. And then they were co-headlining with Real Big Fish. And Real Big Fish, um, I guess, were they were affiliated with Streetlight Manifesto. And then we realized we would go on stage, you know, and our sound was horrible, you know. And we didn't bring a sound guy with us. You know, we're just, you know, regular punk band here. We don't, we're, we weren't at that stage, you know, where we brought a a sound engineer with us and then as soon as we were done the place would fill up and street light would go on and they just sounded incredible it's like they put the faders up and shit and the sound was great and then we realized that the sound guy for real big fish was also the sound guy for street light and they were being managed by the same guy and you know they were building up street light you know to be to kind of take over the spot for real big i guess the the manager was kind of grooming them and um you know it was it was it was a difficult tour for us because again we broke down i think in metropolis remember we broke down in a in a town named metropolis the first uh, the first night the first show our van caught on fire we were driving and the, the the whoever was driving the van was like i smell smoke and then it was like, oh, shit, there's a fire in the van, <laughs> you know, and we had to pull over and we had to, like, put it out. We, I, I actually brought a fire extinguisher. I don't know why, but I brought one and it was underneath the seat. We put out the fire. We made it to the show somehow. And we just had a difficult tour because then it's like, how do you start a tour without a van? You know what I mean? And the van that we thought we had was now no longer functioning. So it was difficult for us to get to the next show. And, um, but I remember, I think back to the question was, that was the, that was the, the tour where we really stood apart from a lot of the bands. Sure, yeah. And a lot of, a lot of kids were coming up to the, to, to our merch booth. Cause that's one thing we're, we're notorious for is we always hung out at the merch booth and we always talk to the fans and engage people we we really weren't so much like hang out in the dressing room kind of rock stars you know what i mean so we were out with the people and a lot of kids would come out come up to us and and say man that was incredible i, I really never heard a, a a band like that that was like really punk but scott at the same time you know so and at that on that tour we were obviously playing more of our scott influenced songs you know we we were able to kind of go to we were like chameleons like that oh this 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 tours with a with a punk band so played a lot of our hard songs you know or this band's this band is ska so let's play more of our ska stuff you know um i think we did influence a lot of kids on that on that tour and as always i always thank Les and jake for taking us on these tours those are great guys you guys brent end up breaking up like a couple of years after that um now it's my understanding that some, one of the reasons that led to that was just an inability to keep the lineup together and having to cancel shows because of it. Well, yeah, it's difficult to to be in a 
it's difficult to be in a punk band as your main um career you know? yeah and um you know and life happens you know we have families and so forth yeah that's when i left um, the band and well i left the band earlier than that it was probably 2000 2001 because my wife at the time got pregnant and i'm like well i can't have roommates all my life you know what i mean so that's when i kind of branched off yeah um you know i'm dealing with I have a rare disease called Marfan syndrome and, um, you know, I have to really watch myself. Can I ask um, a little bit about what it is? Marfan syndrome is a genetic disorder and it affects, um, your connective tissue in your body. Um, one of the main things that it does is, um, you have a lot of cardiovascular issues. Um, I have an aortic aneurysm, but, um, it's it's always being watched and I'm doing really good and I'm I'm pretty healthy right now. So, you know, that that kind of gave me some time to really deal with my health issues and kind of get myself checked out and I'm under control now. But thank you for asking. I I, I want, you know, I think it's it's one of those invisible diseases that people don't realize you have and you know, it's difficult having an invisible disability sometimes. Yeah. Do you, so you mainly manage it through diet and exercise and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm on medications and, you know, I take good care of myself. I don't fucking party anymore like I used to. And um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I'm ready to rock again. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> being a touring punk rock musician, probably yeah, not a great, not a great uh, lifestyle to, to manage a disease like that. Yeah. I remember, you know, when we toured with with GBH, you know, and we're like, man, how old are these fucking guys? And they're still doing it. And it's just like, my hat's off. My my hat goes Yeah, that off. was 20 years ago. Yeah. And they're still doing yeah. it. Yeah, hats. To, to this day, man, those guys never stop. Hats off to them. Road warriors. Hats off to them, you know. But yeah, we all, it, it kind of just fizzled out, you know. I think that it was... It just got harder to stay on the road too. Like there's, there's one thing that's kind of hard to talk about, but um, you know, we we were on tour with um Anti Flag at the time, and we were having van problems. You know, like our van broke down, and we just you know we we could never get ahead of that. We could never get ourselves. We never had enough money to get ourselves a new van to invest into that kind of stuff. So we were just always dealing with breakdowns. And when we were on the tour with Anti Flag, there was a band called The Code, and they had this van and trailer that they were going to sell to us because they were getting a new van and trailer. So we met, we had this deal with hopeless, you know, we were like, Hey, you know, can we get some tour support? We don't have a van. We were supposed to go on tour. We don't have a van, but they're going to sell us this. They're they've agreed to sell us this van and trailer. So, um, you know, we ended up getting the van and trailer. And the deal was that we were going to go out to California. When we got out there, Lewis from hopeless was going to cut us a check. And we were going to, you know, have this van, but it turned out, you know, um, well, it was going to come out of our royalties, I think. And, um, you know, we could never really get ahead. And also the issue with the rotating members, me and Danny have been in the band since day one. Um, and we've had a lot of different members in the band. We always had to, teach a, a drummer a new drummer or a new horn player and 
it just it got hard and yeah, it was just hard to keep it was hard to keep it together and then with the with the financial thing you know when we were on tour they uh hopeless wanted to um they said okay yeah you know what we're gonna buy the van and you guys can pay it back with you know with your royalties and when we got out there i felt i, I kind of felt cornered like we had to they said the only way they would give us the money was if we were to sign our rights away for um for the royalties to the song but we were three thousand miles away from home and the band that we bought the bus the van from was sitting in the parking lot waiting for us to come outside with a check so we were backed into a corner and so we had to sign our you know our rights away to the song and it was just uh, to the uh, like everything that we had done with hopeless until it until our debt was paid off with them so we kind of felt you know i felt stabbed in the back by that and on top of that that just took away our means of support like when we were touring you know, we could make money out on the road, but then when we would come home for four months or six months or whatever it was, we were, we relied on the royalty check to pay our rent, you know, while we weren't touring. And when you took that away from us, like that took the ability to, to, to keep things going for us, you know, yeah. we didn't have that extra, that income. So it's already like tight enough as is, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when we don't have that to tide us through to the next tour, we have to get jobs. We have to figure something out. So that's a raw deal too. I mean, not getting anything from album sales. Yeah. I mean, now, I mean, it's all the debts paid off now. So, but, Oh, it was just until the debt was, it paid was off. yeah, it was because, you know, whenever an advertisement gets taken out or, you know, you're paying for recording or, you know, if you get the box of CDs to sell at your show, like all that, you know, goes on your account, you know, and you got to pay all that all back. Yeah, and that was also during the time that Hopeless was kind of pivoting and having, you know, they had bands like Avenged Sevenfold um, and Thrice, you know, and uh, and they were focusing more on those bands and we were kind of like old news to them. So they didn't really yeah. give a shit about us anymore. And um, I remember we, we did that. We did that tour with Anti-Flag. And um, out of nowhere, they were like, oh, and Thrice is on this tour, too. And, you know, no offense to, to Thrice because they were very nice guys. But we would get to the club and the whole venue would be plastered with Thrice posters from our label. And there was nothing about Against All Authority on there. And we're like, wow, you know, you can't help us with a van. You don't want, you want to put a flyer up for us. We're like, you know, old news to you guys you know, fuck you. You know what I mean? It's kind of how we felt. Yeah. So this show that you guys are playing at Fest, this is your first show in 15 years? Yes, it is. Oh, Pretty yeah. Much. Yep. Tell yeah. me a little bit about what led to this show. Well, I've been, tr- I've had promoters like Jim Hayward was a promoter down in South Florida. He's been and, and multiple promoters over the years were like, hey man, you know, any chance AAA can get back together? I'm like, you know, and I lost contact with Danny for a while. I was always in contact with Joe because we were still in bands, separate bands down there. And he's like, I'm down. I'm, you know, and then um, shit, me and Joe were talking. And then one day Danny was like, hey, what would it take uh, for us to do a show? Maybe like every other month, just do these random like festivals or whatever it may be. 
and that's kind of how it came to fruition. Yeah. Also, I think I think also more so with the um, with the mention of the I think what sparked it was the mention of the uh, um, punk rock museum. I believe, isn't that right, Danny? Yeah. 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 So Venny from Less Than Jake is um, kind of curating the '90s section of that punk rock museum, and he asked us to be a part of it. So I kind of reached out to everybody and I was like, hey, do you have anything you want to donate to the museum? And um, we all started just talking about it. And, you know, Joe and I were talking and I said, you know, the only way I would do it is if we got like the original, you know, members are, are you know, not the not the, you know, first original, but, oh, you know, real, real members. I, I don't want to find new people to play this. And, you know, Spikey would have to be on board. And then, um, yeah, I just, I remember I got a message from Spikey on Facebook, you know, and, and he was just like, dude, you know, those were the best times of my life. And I was like, well, shit, you know, but this, maybe this is it. Maybe we should do this. So yeah, we just started, all started talking about doing it and lo and behold, man, we found this, this, you know, we're all in different parts of the country. We're like, I'm in Gainesville, Joe's in, you know, Joe's down in Miami and Spikey's way over in, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, uh. Who found that app? Was that LP? Yeah, say the name of the app again. It's called Jam Kazam. So I, I work at Sweetwater Sound. I've been there for uh, up here for eight years. And right when the pandemic hit, we were working from home. So all my customers were like, yeah, man, I, you know, because nobody was getting together. So they're like, we're, I'm using this app Jam Kazam. I'm like, man, I would never use that crap. Like Jam with, you know, I got to be in the same room as somebody, right? And then uh, sure enough, this came up and I'm like, dude, let's, I know this app we can get, it's like 10 bucks a month. We can actually jam, you know, from all, all over the world. You know, you got guy you can jam with anybody. So I, you know, I sent out these guys, you know, the little Scarlet interfaces and some headphones and a mic. And sure enough, we've been doing it. You know, first couple of times was weird, you know, not being in the same room, not making eye contact, not, you know. Um, but after like what, a month or two of doing it, it's just like the new normal now. You know? The punk rock museum, by the way, just did a little aside. Um, this is, uh, going to be in Las Vegas, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah so it's Vinny. This is no Vinny. It's not Vinny's project. He's just in charge of the nineties section. Yeah. He was what he's like heading up the nineties. So what did you guys end up donating to the punk rock museum? I think that, that things got put on hold. Like the building was in construction when Vinny contacted us and then the pandemic hit uh. and then prices of, you know, materials and everything went skyrocketing. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, it's still in the works, but I don't know what the end date is for it. So. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see some against all authority in the museum when it does open. Yeah. I think it's moved along. And, um, I was like, when Danny called me, he's like, Hey, you, you, would you donate anything? And I'm like, well, fuck, just take my guitar and my amp. I'm not using them anyways, you know, just put them in there. <laughs> And also I build guitars. So I'm like, you know, I'm not going to play that. If, I, if I'm going to rock out, I'm going to play a fucking guitar that I built, you know? So I'm going to just donate my guitar that I played with my Fender that I played in against all authority with, you know, fuck it. And, um, which was kind of, it's a hard decision. Cause I love that guitar. And then that kind of got the, the wheels turning and we're like, fuck, you know, we need to like play a show, man. And then that ignited the, you know, that spark ignited everything and we're just here we are we're ready to play our first show in 15 years and it's real exciting you know i can't wait to get on stage with these guys you know it's been a long time waiting that and we wrote a bunch of new material yeah we've nice. been writing new songs so we're like ready to you know and and 
you know, I don't know if you guys watch the news, but the political state now, I think we need against all authority again. Sure. We need to fuel the fire again. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon give them a follow on instagram and twitter it's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.